You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Here with us to worship today. This is obviously a time of year where we're often thinking about making improvements to our lives. We want to improve. We want to live different. We want to be different than the way we've been in the past. We want a fresh start. We want to be new, right? That's why we have the saying, new year, new new me, new you. We don't want the things that have held us back in the past to continue to hold us back anymore. I think this is a very commendable desire that we have is very admirable. Growing and maturing and changing are extremely important for us. As I said, we'll be in Colossians 3 today, and Paul is instructing the church on what it is to truly be new, on how to truly live as new people, and specifically he's going to talk about it in the context of Christian fellowship, in the context of the church. How do we live as a community of people who are new? How do we live and walk in the newness that God has for us. The Colossian church, Paul wants them to continue to walk in the fullness of life that God has given them. He wants them to walk in the abundance of life that God has given them, and they need to understand the newness that they have if they're going to be able to walk in it. I felt it a fitting topic for us today to get into as our first sermon of the new year. He doesn't want things to hold them back that have held them back in the past from being who God has created them to be. Now, before we get into Colossians chapter 3, we're going to do a little bit of work in chapter 2 just to give us the the setup, just to give us a little bit of context for chapter 3 that we'll be in. So we'll start it out in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, but again, we'll we'll get to chapter 3 pretty quickly. In Colossians 2.20, Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive... In the world, do you submit to his regulations? He's saying, he's pulling on an aspect of our salvation that's kind of difficult for us to understand. He's saying if you've died to elemental spirits of the world without having time to explain everything that he's talking about there, he's saying they have died to worldly, or as he will say in this chapter, earthly ways of living, ways that are separate from the way God would have for us to live. God created his world good. He created it the way that he desired for it to be. Mankind sinned and rebelled against God. And ever since then, this world has behaved in a way that is separate from what God has for us, from how he calls us to live as his people. And so in the Bible, you often see this way of living called worldly or earthly living. And his point here, he says, if if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why are you, why as if you were, excuse me, still alive in the world, do you submit to his regulations? So one of the things about our salvation that I think is difficult for us to wrap our minds around is that biblically speaking, we are so united with Christ. We are so one with him. We are so in him and he in us that the way that God sees us is as if when Christ died on the cross, we died to sin as well. That all who have placed faith in him, all who follow him, in, in his death, somehow we have died to sin. And in his resurrection, we have been raised with him and are given new life. So Paul here in verse 20 in chapter 2 is asking the question, 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And he's going to go on to talk about the different things that they are submitting to that are worldly. So he starts off by rooting them in the reality that they have died to sin with Christ and also have been raised with him. And he asks the rhetorical question, why then do you live as if you are still alive to the things of this world when that is now dead to you? And as we'll see as we work our way through verses 12 through 15, the fact that we are dead in our sins but now have been raised to new life is very important for us in the way that we see ourselves as Christians if we are going to live as he has called us to live. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So at the beginning of chapter 3, he begins to tell us what it's like to live like we've been raised to life and made new in Christ. I'll read verses 1 and verse 2 in chapter 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He's saying this, this is important. If you've actually been raised to new life with him, then think then on things that are above. Focus your mind and your thoughts on things of God, not earthly things, not sinful things of this earth. And Paul's encouragement in light of that truth is that we should put to death the corrupt things of this world. We'll see this in, in verse 5 where he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in verse 9, he talks about us putting off the old self because we have now died to sin, died to this world. Verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So there's two, two main concepts that we're, that we're getting right here. The first one is you have died to the things of this world as a Christian. United with Christ in his death, we have now died to the things of this world. So he's saying, so put off the old self. So don't live like you're still alive to those things when those things are now dead to you. And he says, put to death what is earthly in you. That's how we live out the fact that we have died to sin with Christ. We are to put to death what is earthly in us, and we are to put off the old self. But also, he talks about us being raised with Christ, as I read in verse 1. And this is what we'll focus most of our time and attention on today. We see in verse 10, we have this encouragement to put on the new self. Paul says in verse 10, and have, put, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So as those who have been made new in Christ, who have died to sin and are alive to God, we are to put off the old self and put on the new self. We are to put to death the things of this world that do not glorify God, and we are to walk in and put on our new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Christians in the room, Paul is about to show us what it truly is to be new. For all my new year, new you people in here, the new you, he's referring to the new you that God has designed for you to be, whom he has created you to be, your truest you. Your truest self, he is desiring for us to grow in that direction. If you want to be the truest and newest version of yourself, Paul's going to give us direction on how to do that. So we'll get to our primary passage for today, Colossians chapter 3, start at verse 12. We'll read 12 and 13. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. I want to make sure we're on the same page with all the different things that he's calling us to put on as we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus and how we have been raised with him. He's one of the things he says, put on his compassionate hearts. This is a, a heart that hurts when others hurt. Another, he says, is kindness. I've heard it described as goodness expressing itself in loving and compassionate deeds. We're to put on kindness. We're to put on humility, not thinking too much of ourselves. We're to put on meekness. This can also be translated gentleness. I think meekness is a word that people don't often understand. Meekness is, is the ability to restrain oneself. Right? There's, a, there's a type of strength that's necessary in order for you to act, in order for you to move, in order for you to, to do something. There's a, sometimes it requires a greater strength to restrain yourself from doing the things that you ought not do. And meekness is when we restrain ourselves from being overly harsh with someone that we're in relationship with. That is meekness, the ability to be honest and the strength to restrain oneself from going too far. We've got to put on Meekness. We're going to put on patience, and this is one we'll focus on a lot today. We're going to put on patience. It means endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. It's the ability to continue on in times of difficulty. It's the ability and tendency to not let trials, to not let suffering, pain, stress, anxiety, the sins of others keep you from continuing to do godly work or whatever God has for you to do. Patience can also be, that word, the Greek word there can also be translated long-suffering. Stability to not quit. Stability to not throw your hands up in the air and give up. It is the strength to not just say, I'm done, whenever something happens that we don't like, or whenever someone hurts our feelings, or whenever someone doesn't love us the way that we want them to. It's the ability to continue and not slow down our love for them, even though they don't love us the way we desire for them to. I'm talking about the new you. New you, new you. Patience is a lasting strength. It's a strength to remain stable no matter what comes your way. He also tells them to bear with one another. Speaking of the word forbearance is to hold oneself up against something. It's to be able to remain steadfast. Paul is saying that we're to bear with one another, meaning being able to remain steadfast in our relationships, even though those relationships at times cost us difficulty. And that's the reality of relationships in a fallen world, isn't it? That relationships will be difficult. Bearing with one another is saying that the difficulties of this relationship don't hinder my love for you. That the difficulties of this relationship don't determine how much I love you or how much I pursue you. This is forbearance. It means we don't let the petty differences get between us as believers. It means not saying, oh, I don't mess with them anymore just because they did something that hurt our feelings. He also says that we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. If someone forgives us, we are to forgive them the way that God has forgiven us. These are the things he's calling us to put on. I love the language that he uses. Put on. That we are to be as intentional about walking in these things as you were intentional this morning about getting dressed. See, to put on something is a different command than to simply do something. To do something, you can do it one time and say you did it. If you put something on, you wear it all day, everywhere you go. This is, just, this is a part of you now. To put it on is not simply to do something, but everything you do, you do it in these ways. 
You do it with patience. You do it with kindness. You do it with humility. You wear these that he has called us to. I'm trying, court. I'm trying. Paul is saying this is how we actually live as the new us, the truest self that we have that God has created us to be. It's important that we realize the Christian life is about putting on and not just putting off. Let me tell you what I mean. A lot of people have an understanding of Christianity and following Christ as just here's a list of things you don't do. You don't do this. You don't do this. You stay away from this. You don't do that. You don't mess with that. And you're a good Christian. But here in this chapter, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is telling us there are things, and I'll read them in a second, that we are to put off, that we are to put away, and there are things that we are to put on. One of the beautiful things that I love about the Christian faith is that he doesn't just save us away from what's bad. He saves us to what is good. He always saves us to what is better than where we currently were. I'll explain that in a second. So let's go to verse 8 and verse 9 before I get ahead of myself. He says, just to give an example of what he's calling us to put to death and what he's calling us to turn away from, verse 8, but now you must put away, put, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Clearly, obviously, in Christianity, there are things that we're called not to do, but it's not simply staying away from the bad. When Jesus is encouraging his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, he doesn't just tell them not to live in darkness. He tells them, you are the light of the world. He doesn't just say, blessed are those who try not to sin. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see what he's doing? He's not just saying, this is what you, you should spend your whole life trying to stay away from this. He's saying, no, spend your life pursuing this, being after this. I am saving you away from this, and I'm saving you to this, which is so much better. Amen. When Jesus saves us out of something, he's always saving us into something else. He tells us to turn away from sin, and he tells us to pursue righteousness. He saves us from the kingdom of darkness and puts us in the kingdom of God. He saves us from the lake of fire and sends us to the new heaven and the new earth. He saves us from the outpouring of his wrath, and he lavishes and pours out his grace and goodness and kindness on us. He tells us to put off the old self, but he calls us to put on the new self. That there's an intentionality about where we are going as believers, about how we are living. It's not just what we don't do. It is what are we active in? What are we intentional about doing as we put on the new self? One of my favorite things on social media this time of year is when people say things like, leaving some baggage behind in 2019, so if you don't hear from me, you know where you and I stand. Hashtag thanks, management. 2020, new year, new me. New year, new me. Management has made some decisions. You didn't make the cut. A few other things I saw. When leveling up, you got to leave some people behind. (laughs) Don't be afraid to leave people behind. Don't be weary when, when you leave people behind. Not everyone is going where you're going, and not everyone can fit into your purpose. Happy Friday. It's okay to distance yourself from from draining people. Remember to always put your peace of mind first. Often this includes even people you're close to. It's a learning experience, but all in the end, you're taking care of you. There's a validity. There's a validity to the fact that we must have boundaries, that we must be mindful about the type of relationships that we have. There's very much validity to that, but I'm 
I'm nervous, even for us as Christians, that in us claiming to be trying to be new, we actually just want to cling to the old us. That we actually don't want the newness that Christ is offering us, that we actually just, we, we want to still be the old us and call it the new us. And saying, this is, this is the new me, but what I want is the old. I think sometimes we live as if this verse that Paul reads in verse 8, instead of telling us to, to put away anger, wrath, malice, and slander, we, we read it as if he's saying, put off difficult people. Put off the people that are holding you back. But really, when we look, when we take a deep look at the list of things that Paul encourages us to put off, it's actually, he's calling us to put off worldly ways of responding to difficulty and conflict in relationships. Let's look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, that's being malicious, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. These are earthly and worldly ways that people respond oftentimes when we are offended in relationships, when we have conflict in relationships. And he's telling us to put those things off. Here in the Word of, in the word of God, we're called to be done with worldly ways of responding to people that may be difficult for us to be in relationship with. All right, now I want to go back. Let's look at verse 12 and verse 13 again. I want to notice also the relational nature of the things that Paul calls us to in these verses, the relational nature of the things he's calling us to, to put on, things that are often needed, very much needed, if we're going to walk in unity as sinners who are called to fellowship with each other. These things that he calls us to, they're difficult, they're beautiful, they're needed, if we're going to be able to walk in unity in the fellowship of Christ. Verse 12 again. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is just an explanation of how to actually love people. He gives us words that are difficult and trying, and then he comes back and says, love is actually what binds all this together. The different things he has called us to, to, to call us to put on, are actually different aspects of love. Patient, patience, for example, in this relationship context, is the form that love takes when, when you have to endure suffering in a relationship. Meekness is the form that love takes when you have to restrain yourself from being too forceful with someone you care about. Forbearance is the form that love takes when you are just tired of the difficulty of walking in fellowship with other believers. Forgiveness is the form that love takes when someone sins against you. Paul says that it is love that binds all of these together. Ultimately, Paul is saying put on love. Put on love. If you want to be new, if you want to walk in newness, it's so simple that it's profound. He's saying put on love. I was having a conversation with someone in our church. Uh, they were having some difficulty, just, just relationship issues within the church, and wanted to be done with uh, this person and just didn't want to continue to walk in fellowship with them, didn't want to continue to walk in unity, didn't want to continue to have a relationship with them. And one of the things I noticed in talking to this person and a handful of other people also, um, and sometimes I, I even ask this question, is in your past, when your friendships hit a very difficult spot, when someone sinned against you in a way that was really painful, do you still have those friendships? All those friendships gone. 
a worldly way of dealing with conflict. It's when, it's when someone offends us, when someone sins against us, it's to just be done with them. And we as Christians have brought it into the church and talked about it like it's godly, like that's the new self. We have brought that same worldly mindset. That's a worldly way of thinking, right? That's putting on the old self. That's not putting on the new self. Putting on the new self is, is patience and humility and meekness and forbearance and loving one another and forgiving one another. We can't bring in worldly ways of handling relationships into the church. They don't fit within the body of Christ and within the kingdom of God. That's living as if we have not been raised in new life, but living as if we are still spiritually dead and in our sins. That is actually putting off the new self and putting on the old self. It's putting on anger and wrath. It's not putting on humility or patience or meekness. It's refusing to bear with our brothers and sisters and forgive them as Christ has forgiven us. And let's be honest, we all have some of this in us. We all struggle with humility. We all struggle with patience and forbearance. Walking in Christian fellowship is difficult. It's difficult for all of us, and we shouldn't expect it to be easy. We're going to sin against one another. There's going to be drama in the church. There's no way around it because none of us are perfect because you're trying to do life with people that's just as sinful as you are. We're all walking around with the sinful nature, yet we're called to share our lives together in Christian fellowship with one another. And anyone who truly walks in biblical Christian fellowship, who walks in the depth of relationship that we're called to, is going to have their feelings hurt. We're going to offend each other. It's going to be difficult. If not, why would Paul instruct us to have patience, a.k.a. long-suffering? You don't need long-suffering if it's not difficult, if it's not challenging. You only tell someone to put on long-suffering if they're going to have to endure something for a long period of time. Honestly, that leaves me with two questions. When I think about that reality of Christian fellowship, it leaves me with two questions. The first question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I think if you've been walking in deep Christian fellowship for a while, especially in our church and our life groups, you've come face to face with this question. <laughs> On a Tuesday night Amen. at 6.15, 6.30, sorry. On a Tuesday night, you've come face to face with this question. Is it worth it? Is Christian fellowship actually worth the effort, actually worth the difficulty? Why do we continue to do this? Why don't I just come up with some excuse not to show up? Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the difficulty? Is it worth the drama? This is something we have to be settled on. Is it worth it? The answer to this question is yes. If you bear in mind the true point of Christian fellowship, and I think we, gotta, I think we misunderstand the true purpose of Christian fellowship. If we bear in mind the true purpose, I want to I bring up what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that he is the center of our fellowship. And I would say he is the aim of our fellowship as well. I would say the true essence of Christian fellowship is following Christ together. Following Christ together. It is going through this life together that we might more and more know Christ and make him known. That's what Christian fellowship is. So here's actually the question. I want to tweak it a little bit. I know I asked, is it worth it? The true question is, is he worth it? The true question is, is he worth it? If the point of Christian fellowship is to know him more, if the point of Christian fellowship is to grow in him, 
If we know that our God has been using the fellowship of believers for 2,000 years to grow his people up together, then the question is not simply, is it worth it? It's, is Christ worth it? Is knowing him worth it? Is it worth the difficulty? Because you know, if you've been with us for a while, you know he's going to use the difficulty to grow you. He's going to use it to strengthen you. He's going to use it to teach you to lean on him. Is he worth it? Is he worth the difficulty? There are several people in this room who I know will be willing to testify. There were times that I didn't want to continue on bearing with my brothers and sisters, but I continued on and God has used it in powerful ways in my life. Yes, it is worth it. It's worth it to continue on a Christian fellowship, even when it's difficult for the gain of knowing Christ, the one who has loved us more than anyone, the one who came and gave his life as a sacrifice so that we could have eternal life, the one that was condemned as a criminal but never committed a crime, the one who died as a sinner, died a sinner's death but was without sin, the one who loved us when we didn't love him, the one who suffered death so that we can have life, the one who abandoned heaven but will never abandon us. He is worth it. Gaining Christ, knowing him, walking with him is the truest joy that your truest, newest self could ever have. It is the truest joy that you could ever experience. Knowing him is always, always, always worth the difficulty that comes with it. There's always a cost, but the reward is always greater. The reward with Christ, this is the principle you need to always keep in mind. There's always a cost to following him, but the reward that we gain from him is always greater than what he asks for from us. He always gives us more than he asks of us. He always gives more than he asks. We never give to him or give up for him more than we receive from him. It is always worth it. He is worth it. Here's my other question. How do we live like this then? If it's worth it, how do we live it out? How do I walk in this patience that that he's talking about? This is difficult. Okay, I understand. Okay, it's worth it. It's good. This is something we should do. How do we find the strength to actually live like this, put on these things that Paul has called us to put on? I want to draw special attention to the way that Paul calls us to put on these things. There are sometimes there, there, there are phrases, there are words in the Bible, I think, that we can quickly skip over without realizing how important they actually were. And I hope that you haven't missed them as we've been going through it. Notice when Paul is encouraging them to live different, first I want to point out what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, man, y'all know better, so you should just do better. He doesn't say, I can't believe you're acting like this, just stop. He doesn't leave their transformation just to their willpower. He doesn't base whether or not they're actually going to grow on how strong their will is or how much effort they can put into it. Instead, he says, hey, this is who you are. He goes to identity statements. You've been raised with Christ. He's saying that's the old you. That's not who you are anymore. You've been made new. So live like you've been made new. Put on the new and put away the old you. He's saying, hey, something different has already happened to you. He's not having them rely on their own strength to be changed. He's having them rely on the power of God that has already transformed them. And he's calling them to live in the new identity that they currently have. He's rooting his call to repentance in what God has already done in them. So as they grow in their belief and their understanding of the fact that they are new creations, they'll begin to live like it. Because who you understand yourself to be determines how you live. That's important. If you write stuff down, that's one to write down. Who you believe yourself to be, who you understand yourself to be, determines how you live. 
growing up, I thought being very emotional was feminine. I thought that was a feminine thing. So for me, I thought that that wasn't appropriate for me, so I learned very quickly to suppress my emotions. Because of who I understood myself to be, it affected how I lived. Who you understand yourself to be, I'm still reaping problems from that practice that I've been ingrained in for so long. It's affected me, it affects my relationships, it affects my marriage. Because when you so believe something to be true about yourself, it will affect the way that you live. When I was in high school, I saw myself as an athlete. So I was working out hard, flexing in the mirror, trying to be the best. Now I'm just trying not to look like I'm out of shape, to be honest with you. I'm just trying, I ain't even trying to be in great shape. I just don't, I'm just trying to look like I'm not out of shape. Now I see myself as a domesticated father. Y'all see me, I be pushing the minivan like it's 2002 and they got spinners on it. Now I see myself as a domesticated father with, with too many kids, so now I drive a minivan and I love it. And I just love it. For Christmas, I get slippers. Sometimes I get socks. I get pajamas, and I love it. I'm, I'm fully in. I've embraced it. I love it because who I understand myself to be is affecting what I now enjoy and what I now appreciate. I was the happiest person in this room on Christmas. Loved it. Paul knows that who we understand ourselves to be will determine how we act and how we live. So there's four things I want to point out that he reminds them of as he's revealing to them their new identity. He reminds them that they've been raised to new life in Christ. These are four things you will want to keep in mind as well. He reminds them that we have been raised to new life in Christ. He's telling them you are different. You have been made new. You've died to living based on the way the world lives. You're dying today. He's saying that's not who you are anymore. So don't act like you're still dead to your sins. You've been given new life. He wants them to understand that about themselves. Your life is now wrapped up in Christ our Savior. Don't, li- don't live like you haven't been given new life. He's saying you're not spiritually dead anymore. Your sin does not rule you anymore. It does not own you anymore. Live like you now live for your Savior. You've been made new. You've been raised to new life in Christ. But he doesn't just remind them that they've been raised to new life. He also reminds them that they've been chosen. Let's look, at, look back at verse 12. He says, put on then. You got to understand these identity statements. You got to focus in on them. Anytime Paul uses them, you got to pay attention to what he's saying before he calls them to live the way that he calls them to live. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Amen. He said, I'm about to tell you what you need to do, but first you need to remember who you are. I'm going to tell you how you should live, but first you need to remember who Christ has now made you to be, God's chosen ones. He said, you are the chosen people of God. You don't live like that anymore. You are the chosen people of God. Before you were ever formed, he knew who you were. He desired to have you. That means you are different. You are the chosen people of God. Before you were formed, God said, I want you. I choose you. And he, I mean, just so we're clear, he chose you before you ever chose him. The third thing he reminds us of is that we have been set apart. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That word holy just means set apart. And his encouragement for us to be who we're made to be, he reminds us that a part of our new identity now is that we've been set apart. We've been made to be different. We aren't to live according to this world anymore. We are a holy people. That's who we are, called to his service. And the last identity point that I want to make is that he says that we are his beloved. 
holy and beloved, he says. When you think about who you are at your core, if someone asks you who you are, I hope and I pray that one of the things that comes to your mind is I'm a part of the beloved people of God, that I have received the very love of God, that the king of all creation, the ancient of days, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the Lord of lords, the one who sits high and looks low, he has placed his love on me. I am forever, eternally loved more than I can even fathom or understand. I hope you see yourself that way. We sang that he is a good, good father. That's who he is. And we are loved by him. That's who we are. We are the beloved people of God. That is our identity. We might feel like at times we're not loved. What, what is true is we are the beloved people of God. We may feel unlovable at times. You are the beloved people of God. You may feel like maybe God is looking at you sideways or doesn't really like you all that much because of things that you have done. You are the beloved. We are the beloved people of God. You're going to be rejected by people in this life. We are the beloved people of God. You might feel like people in your life group don't love you. You are the beloved people of God. This Christian fellowship, this following Christ together, it is difficult. But any and all of the sacrifices that we're called to make are worth it. He makes sure we always receive more than we give, that he always rewards us with more than we sacrifice, and he gives us the power through his Holy Spirit to live as he has called us to live. He has made us new, made us his people, changed our identity, and now we get the privilege of actually knowing what it is to be made new, to actually walk in newness of life because we have been raised with him. Let us keep in mind who we are. I know you probably got goals for 2020. Make this one of them. Remember who you are. Remember who he has made you to be. Remember who you are not. Remember what you have died to. Remember that you have been raised to new life in Christ. Remember that you have been chosen. Remember that we are his holy people. Remember that we are his beloved. And I believe here's the outworking of that as I close. Verse 15. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. That as we remember who we are in him, let us seek to allow the peace that we now have with God because of what Christ has done to so rule and govern our lives that we live as far as we can walk in peace with those who are around us. That the very peace that God has created between us and him would, would, would so, that we would so embody, that it would so fill us and run us and rule us, that now we live differently. That our lives, that our church, that our life groups, that our relationships are ruled by the very peace of God. And that we will walk in love to one another as his body as we follow Jesus together. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful grateful today that you have made us new. Father, we turned away from you. We went our own way. We wanted to choose our own path because we didn't like your path for us. And Father, you didn't just stay back and tell us what we need to do differently. You came to us. You touched us. You healed us. You made us new. and You gave us new life in you that we might live the way we were created and designed to live. Father, thank you for sending your son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
to transform us, to make us new, that we might actually know what it is to walk in newness of life. Father, yet we wrestle with the old self. We desire oftentimes to put on the old self. Father, in our relationships, there's going to be difficulties. There's going to be drama. There's going to be pain. There's going to be offense. Father, we need your strength. We need your Holy Spirit to bring back, bring back to, our, to our minds, to our memories that we have been made new, that we are your people, that we are beloved by you, that you have made us holy. We're going to need to be reminded to put off the old self, Father, when, when we feel that desire to lash out, to practice the anger, the, the wrath, the malice. We need your Holy Spirit to remind us and strengthen us in those very moments. Father, we're going to put on patience. Let us remember that you are patient with us. That as we seek to, to put on forgiveness and forgive our brothers and sisters, we need to remember that you have forgiven us. Remind us of these things, Lord. Keep these things at the forefront of our minds and in the depths of our hearts. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.